Welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and in each episode, Matt and I discuss the real-life struggles, ideas, and strategies of successful entrepreneurs and business leaders like himself. Unlike much of the startup or management advice out there, these conversations don't come from a book or from a TED Talk, but rather from the current daily ins and outs of an entrepreneur in the trenches making it happen every day. One of the themes that emerged over the many previous installments of this podcast was the idea of hiring the right people to fit your strategy. So in this episode, we talk about just that, hiring. Actually, it's a little bit broader than just hiring. We get into the whole staffing issue, hiring, firing, dealing with departures, attracting the right people, even onboarding. Um, It's funny, it's worth noting that during the course of recording this podcast, I myself actually left Matt's company, uh, only to return again eight months later. So there's a lot of real-life first-person perspective involved in all of this. So with that, here's Matt. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Anthony. So you've had a bit of an interesting, not just couple of weeks, but actually an interesting year, I think, at Royalty Exchange with staff. It's been an interesting year on a lot of fronts, but definitely there's been a lot of turnover within the business in the last year. In particular, in the last about five or six weeks, there's been a lot of turnover. I get questions all the time about how do you handle getting good people in the door, keeping them in the door, and handling it when you need to let people go or when people choose to leave on their own. We need to show someone the door. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Sometimes that has to happen. Those are three definitely big buckets to talk about. And I think the most recent uh, development with you has been some other folks showing themselves uh, the door, leaving on their own accord, uh, one of which far earlier in the year was uh, actually myself as an example. We can get to that later if you want. But you know, you've know, you had someone recently um, give notice. I know maybe to start with that, you have a small company and there's not exactly a lot of people. So even at any level when someone leaves, there's, it definitely changes the dynamic pretty dramatically, I think. We have um, 22 employees. And we had four people, if I remember right, four people in total quit this year. You were one of those people. And then we had three other more entry-level type positions, lower-level positions, but all you know, good people who we, you know, we liked. I think we're, in general, cultural fits. Mm-hmm. But all three of those left over the course of the year as well. And who you relied on. Yes, they were in, again, lower-level roles. But we don't have so many people that when one person leaves, it doesn't cause an impact on the rest of the organization. So when someone comes to you and says, I'm leaving, what's the first reaction? Luckily, they don't actually say it to me first most of the time. Really? You did. <laughs> but with everybody else, you know, they had a boss that wasn't me. Mm. I got to hear it from them. And so then it gives me a little moment or two to think about it because I go, is this a bad thing or is this a good thing? As the company grows and we, you know, we're growing this year, our auction GMV is double what it was last right. year. So it was like, we're growing fast. What the business needs is totally different today than what it needed a year ago. And so a lot of times, even when you have a great employee who's really contributed dramatically to the business, you know, you have to always ask yourself, is that still the right person for the job? That's interesting. So in a certain extent, some of those folks leaving are, is going to be a natural attrition. First of all, it's going to happen regardless, no matter what. Especially right. in an economy like ours, mm-hmm. where honestly, in Denver in particular, there's a shortage of talent available and wages keep getting pushed up. and mm-hmm. so. If you're a young person, the biggest way for you to increase your salary is to job hop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it makes sense. Right. I, I don't blame people for doing it. I guess what I'm saying is that if as your company is growing or evolving, however you want to term it, if you realize the person who was in the job from that was there a year ago may not be the right person going forward, do you have to wait for the person to leave on their own? How do you balance that? I mean, if something you say, if it's a good thing or a bad thing, if it's a good thing, why isn't that person already gone? I think you have an obligation to your employees to give them every benefit of the doubt. And if they're not committing, 
great errors. You know, if they're coming in to work with the right attitude, they're getting their job done, they're doing reasonable work, then I think you owe them the right to try and find a place where they can create more value in the company. Unless there's a consistent pattern of underperformance or of an attitude that's bad for the organization or an abdication of responsibilities Mm -hmm. of some kind, then I think you owe them that. Everyone goes through cycles. So like you can have somebody who has, you know, maybe they have something going on in their personal life that's not good. So they aren't showing up to work the same way they showed up three months before that. You don't want your staff in general terrified that if they aren't always performing at the highest level they're capable of, that they're going to lose their job. Your office, like your home, has to be some kind of a sanctuary for the people who work there. Right. You know, where they like, it's going to be okay. Okay. Here. So you want to give people the room to grow and find the place where they can fit. There was a person yesterday who gave her two weeks notice. I really like her. I think she's great. I like her personally. I think Mm. she's a little weird. She's eccentric. I think it kind of defines a lot of people at the company. I I love people (laughs) like that. So I think she's really great. She's going to work for a company not too far away from where we are, a Mm -hmm. technology company that's doing a lot of hiring in Mm -hmm. Denver right now. When I saw that this was happening, she was supposed to post something in Slack. I asked myself, is this a good thing or a bad thing? There have been a couple instances where she's made really significant errors. They were just, it was more probably about job fit than anything else, you know? And any one of those things would have been reasonable for us to fire her for, actually, these mistakes. And maybe we should have, but she did lots of other good work along the way. And so when I would never fire her, I don't think we'd ever fire her. And yet we have an opportunity with her leaving to upgrade the role substantially. And that's the word I was, that I was thinking of. Like, it's like you say, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I might determine, is, is it a problem or is it an opportunity? That's the right way to think of it, yeah. Okay, so that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that mentioning when you wait for someone to leave or you, whether you show them the door, and we'll get to that door part in a second. I guess one of the other things you tell me is that this person may not be 100%, I'm not talking about this person in particular, I'm talking about yeah. in general, a, a, an employee may not be 100% exactly what you were hoping for, but the risk of letting them go in hopes of finding someone else to fill in whatever that gap is, is actually greater than leaving the person on to see if they grow into it on their own. Because it's like the devil you know. That's definitely true. I mean, the grass is definitely not always greener. When somebody is honest, you know, and they are committed and they take direction and they receive feedback well, like that's a pretty good foundation. And so if you got that situation, then as a manager, the first thing when one of your subordinates, I don't even like that word, one of your subordinates the word makes a mistake. Yeah, when they make a mistake, you have first to go, what did I do wrong? Did I not make sure that they understood that this was important? Did I not show them how to do it? Do they not have the natural disposition for this level of detail work? Is there a better fit for this person in somewhere else in the company? That's always my attitude. I want all of our managers to have that attitude. And I think that is the best long-term approach. But sometimes you do have to fire people. And the three and a half years at Royalty Exchange, I think we've maybe fired four people in total. So you've got someone who's performing, for lack of a better word, adequately. They're not going to get fired. And I get promoted, but you know, they're doing what you need them to do with, and the risk of letting that person go for the hope of maybe trying to find someone better is just too great. So they kind of stay as they stay. And then if, and when they do leave on their own power, you look at it as an opportunity. Actually, before we move on to firing, I just want to dig into the opportunity part. When you say the opportunity, what does that mean? Is it an opportunity to find someone who might be able to do the job better, or is it an opportunity to redefine the role itself? That's the key, actually. It's that the person who is in that role and leaving, they were probably doing more than adequate for the role as we thought of it at the time that they took it. But now the business has changed. The role has changed in our eyes about what's possible with that role. And so we have the opportunity to totally redefine it. And I think a lot of it is expectations with the person. Like if she would have received the expectations that her successor will receive, my guess is that we would feel like she was performing at a more than adequate level all the time. Because just explaining, 
these are your priorities. This is what you own. Mm-hmm. This is what you are totally responsible for. Here's what you need to know in order to be able to do this effectively. And of course, there is a potentially hiring a person who has slightly better disposition or skills for that mm-hmm. role could make sense too. But so much of it is how you define the expectations. People don't accept shifts in expectations about their work well throughout their career. You know what I mean? It's like, I yeah, absolutely know what you yeah. mean, yes. So if it's like you have a deal and someone starts with a certain understanding about what the job is, and then you know six months into it, you say, okay, now you know I know that this is what we told you before, but we actually want you to do it like this instead. You feel slighted in some way. And that's kind of weird. Just a little bit more with this one, because on one hand, when the employee comes in and starts doing the job as it was outlined for them when they accepted the role, they're the ones that tend to want to push upward and expand the role themselves. Hey, I'd like to take on more of this. I'd like it to be more of like that. I the like good it. ones do. Right? The good ones do. And that's something as a manager or as a founder or whatever you might have, most of the time you consider that a good thing so yeah. long as you have faith that that person could actually do those areas that they want to expand yes. into. I'm sure it could be bad when it's like someone coming in and as, you know, in one area wants to be something completely different. You're like, well, that's not going to work. So that, there can definitely be a negative side to it. But what's odd is that when it's the reverse, it's somehow pushback, unless it's presented as a promotion of some kind. If it's matters of promotion, that's different. But if, for instance, you make more clear that there can be zero tolerance of errors in a specific part of their job, like it has to be okay. absolutely perfect, but you weren't really clear about that before, they feel like they're being penalized, like right. you know, they're being overly scrutinized. And then people just kind of reject it. Most people will generally go along with it, but they do feel like they're put upon by that change. Right. So we talked about opportunity. What if it's a problem? Well, it's always a problem in the short term, no matter sure. what. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah, if nothing else, you got to shift the responsibilities quickly, have other people fill in in the, in the near term, get the recruiting process started. Well, we'll talk about when you left. Ultimately, if you really do care about your employees, then you want them to do what they want to do. You want them to do the things that they want to do. In general, in their life, not just at the company. Yeah, and within the company too. So like, I like people kind of self-selecting their path within it. Maybe people come in with a general framework of a role, but I don't mind it. I think it's important actually that that role evolve based upon their talents and interests. But it happens externally too. So the first thing I try and do is to like try and be objective about what happened. And see, when you told me, I didn't have like the time to think, is this a good thing or a bad thing? You were jet lagged. It was bad. I hate <laughs> to drop this on you today, but- Sorry, man, but it's kind of a timely thing. And it's yeah. sort of, you know- I had to respond to it in real time. And I mean, ultimately- the way that you described the job and that you'd always been interested in doing something and it was a, an area that was a personal interest and passion of yours, how could you not feel good about it? I remember your first reaction, which, you know, you didn't go, I mean, you're mad. You were pretty calm about everything usually. So then that's kind of what, but I know that you weren't exactly thrilled, but I saw how you kind of evolved and once you kind of understood more and, and you kind of had a minute to not be jet lagged and actually, you know, sleep on, that you saw the benefit of it. And I always appreciated how you ultimately was happy for me. I was happy for you. you know, and, yeah. and that meant a lot. But it was a problem for the company. Your role was a unique role, one that could not be filled easily by anyone else who's there, and one that was not obvious to me at all how we could refill. Because when you came to us originally, it was what I would consider like an opportunistic hire, somebody who seemed clear had talent and some skills that could really help us, but it wasn't even exactly clear how. So it's not like we had a specific job that we went for, we're looking for, and you know you were part of a recruiting process that right. then filled that. You know, was the best fit for the job. It was. You were a person who knew a lot about what we were trying to do because of your body of experience and, you know, had talents and skills that could really help us. And we didn't really know how, and we just hired you anyway and said, let's just see how it works out. So those opportunistic hires, I think you have to have, and we can talk about that later more if you want. Well, since we're on the subject, let's just roll with it. I mean, I'm not the only one that 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 happened. You've done that at least twice before that I could think of. Yeah. 
the vast majority of the expenses of our business are the people. You mentioned that before, yes. I mean, I would say, you know, something like 80% of our monthly expenses are people. Our salary, yeah. If you were to look at how you determine what is important in your business based upon the way you spend the capital, like we've talked about another time, it's right. people. It's where it really is. And that would be true regardless. That's just the nature of our business. It would have to be that way. So the question is, how do you get the best people on the boat when the boat has to constantly rebuild itself? Yeah. So that's an interesting balance. I mean, on one hand, I could see for startup with the normal startup constraints in terms of you know capital and revenue and things like that. I would, on one hand, see the argument where you would want to more overtly craft the specific roles that you need and look for those specific roles and, and be very, very deliberate about that. That seems to be one logical approach, but what you're talking about is really the exact opposite of that is just being like, we don't have any of that, but this person seems right, so let's just grab them and see what happens. And so I'm kind of wondering how you balance those two components. Every company has definite roles that you can clearly define, but when you're doing at least what we're trying to do, where we're innovating, we're trying to do something that has never been done before, it's not really clear exactly what roles we need. If we were building an assembly line for Ford F-150s, I think we could take a sure. an org chart and go, okay, well, we no. need a plant manager, we need a line manager, sure. we need somebody, you know, sheet metal assembly people, whatever it is, and lots of robots. You know, you could define every single role very clearly, but with us, I think of entrepreneurship like, I know a lot of people don't, but I really do think it's like art. And you don't really know what combination of elements you really need there on the palette, essentially, to create what we're trying to create. And it kind of has to evolve over time. And I think the best way to make sure it evolves over time right is to have committed, talented people on board who are capable of doing lots of different things based upon their experience, their interests, and their talents, and not necessarily pigeonhole those people. Actually, no, never pigeonhole those people. Because talented people who are really committed to what we're trying to do can do things that you can't imagine they can do if you create an environment where they are allowed to do that. To a certain extent, one of the things that I realize is that everyone has, I don't care who you are, what kind of a leader you are, how good you are as an entrepreneur, you have natural blind spots. So you try to find people that naturally live within your blind spots. Now, those people have their own blind spots, and hopefully everyone's got everyone's blind spots covered in exactly. some respect. That's a big part of it. I mean, you definitely want people who contrast each other. You're not going to have strengths across the board, and oftentimes being really strong in one area necessitates weakness in another area. I think that's a good thing. You can't be really good at something unless you're also probably awful at something else. So it's good. That's fine. And having these overlapping skills and not just skills, but temperaments and just approaches to looking at things, right. I think is really, really helpful. I love the diversity of attitude and ideas. I think that's wonderful. I think that's where the best ideas come out of that conflict between different personalities and attitudes about things. So I think that's really good and really important. That's interesting. The idea of culture fit. That can get really confusing really quickly. Like to your point, you like people that have all these different approaches and ideas. And so on one hand, that could be kind of hard to figure, okay, what is the quote unquote culture that you're fitting for when you have all these people that have all this diverse sort of backgrounds and ideas? And my guess is with you, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that culture is the willingness to enter that mosh pit, as it were, of ideas and accept that it's not always going to be your way, but you're going to be the kind of person who's always going to share your way, something like that. I'm not yeah. sure if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, I mean, culture fit is, this is like a third rail in a way. Like, I think that over-focus on culture actually can be a disaster. It ends up becoming like a... What's the word I'm looking for? It's like white bread. Monoculture. Monoculture, thank you. To me, it's much more about, I like people that know who they are and that they have their way of doing things. I like people that have that kind of solid base. So that's important to me within that person when I look at a cultural fit. 
because people who don't know they are, who they are don't have the confidence to actually argue any kind of point against mm -hmm. people. They kind of just turn into a chameleon and fit in wherever they are. So I'd rather have people who are going to test each other in ideas. But ultimately, it's the ideas matter and not who the ideas come from. So that's a big part of the culture for mm -hmm. me, which means they have to, people have to be willing to challenge things. And non-political, meaning where well, there's no factions. Those things are actually easy to test for. You can find out about the sort of political factions within their prior jobs. Most companies, especially if they get a little larger, do have these political factions of someone kind of another. I've learned you know about that. I've yeah. learned that. So you can find out about those environments. People will usually be pretty open in telling you, and they don't realize that they're kind of convicting themselves of being political themselves when they're explaining it to you. But okay. you can figure that out pretty easily. And then whether or not they're a strong person who has a real point of view on things is also very easy because they will tell you things in an interview that they maybe, if they were just trying to be a chameleon, they would feel very uncomfortable telling you. They would hold back. Let's go back to what we were talking about, which are these um, sort of outlier. Opportunistic. Exactly, times. exactly. Yeah. So like in that respect, how does that work? Like how do you, is it just like a gut feeling, a sixth sense? I mean, I think you do feel a certain way about the person and that is a big part of it. But I also think if you believe, first of all, that a talented person given the room to do their work and is committed to doing that work can create value within an organization. So if you have that basic framework and you have a budget where you can afford to bring in people without a specific deliverable that has to be produced by them within the next period of time, then you can keep your eye out for people like this. There's a person we hired who um, you know, was a former executive at one of the large organizations that we have to work with regularly. And it was clear when I met this person, first of all, she's a, a real professional. She came into the interview challenging us, coming in like, you guys say you do good things for artists, but prove it to me. And I thought that was wonderful because she was like, I'm interviewing the job because I'm kind of interested. But I'm well, interviewing but I can, you. Yeah, but I can walk easily. Yeah, yeah, and I'm interviewing you because if I feel like you're not doing good things for artists, I want nothing to do with you. And I love that. I thought that was so great because it shows strong person, defined point of view. And, uh, you know, and having come from that organization, she knew enough about the industry and what we, you well, know, we didn't know. Yes. She knew a lot. The important thing is that we didn't have a clear job for her at all. As far as I was concerned, the signaling value of us, of her, Everyone knowing that she is a militant supporter of artists and worked for one of these large organizations has a lot of credibility within them, that she would choose to join our team sends an incredible signal to at least that organization, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe lots of others. And I thought if she really does nothing in our organization at all, except for admits that she works here and is happy to work here, <laughs> then it could be really helpful for us right. at the stage we were at just because of her experience and just because of the strength of her character, it seemed obvious to me that she could add tremendous value. So we hired her and said, here's a general area we'd like you to work on, but mostly we don't want to bog you down with anything specific. Mm -hmm. We want you to just follow your instincts and find a way that you can actually create the most value. And she's been a tremendous benefit. To the work. I mean, she's been wonderful for us to have. Oh, absolutely. And if we hadn't given her that space, I think we might have pigeonholed her in a smaller role, probably. You don't know what you don't know. So to a certain extent, you hired someone who knows a lot of things that you, that you know you don't know, then was empowered to a certain extent, maybe not completely do whatever she wanted, but can at least say, hey, now that I've been here for a while, based on this past experience, what we need to do is A, B, and C, yep. and then give the freedom, you know, as long as that pitch or whatever you want to call it lands and makes sense to you in the broader sense of the organization, you could create a role, but you don't know what the role really needs to be. So it was a very interesting two-way process. I remember watching that as it happened. And it was very interesting and it made a lot of sense. I know that most employees, when they're in a job, they feel like, well, this is my job. It's always that two-way process okay. the entire time. What do you want to be doing? What do you think you should be doing? Let's expand the role or shift the role slightly so that it's actually, it's working towards your strengths. 
you can't always do the work that you only want to do. But I do know that if you can put people in a position where they can do the work that they want to do that is meaningful to them, they will do it better, way better than someone else who doesn't want to do it or doesn't find it meaningful. I guess I have to ask the question though then, what happens when you've got two people who are making the same argument for the same role or activity if it's not role? You see what I'm saying? Like, How do you juggle that? And that speaks a little bit to the retention part to a certain extent too. Like the whole management and all this stuff, but just like just generally speaking. I think that the biggest thing is that you have to have an open dialogue with all of your employees all the time about how their role might evolve. And I think where we have made mistakes, or I certainly have made mistakes over the course of the years, is that while I always thought it's this two-way process, Mm -hmm. sometimes in any organization I've ever run, feel as though it's not. And they can't see how their future works here. You know, they feel like they're kind of trapped in this role. In most cases, they're probably not, but that's probably the way they feel. I mean, retention, like there's no tricks to retention to keeping people around. You know, you have to create an environment that people want to be in. That's a better environment than other environments would be for them. And I think that there's, you know, sometimes money can be a factor, you know, especially for early career employees because they're like entry level salaries, barely able to make it, especially in a place that's fairly expensive like Denver is. With those folks, money can be a major motivator, but certainly I'd say once you're like at 30, or even by 30, it's not nearly the same factor for you that it was earlier. And so it's much more about, do I like the work that I'm doing? Do I think it makes a difference? Do I see a future here? Is the business doing the right things? If the business is doing the right things, naturally you will have good retention and the biggest risk is on that earlier career. Earlier, exactly, exactly, that makes sense. And then one other one I'll add is that you also have some people who are just naturally insane and who are always looking to like, what else is out there? What else could I be doing? Like me. Well, I'm pointing the finger (laughs) at myself at at, at this point, which is why, you know, my thing is like, okay, once things start to feel too settled, it's almost like, for some people, it's a very comforting feeling. For others, it's a very panic-inducing. It's almost stressful, yeah. You're absolutely right. So there's that component of folks, and that could be a whole nother (laughs) episode, I think. That dilettante, how to retain the dilettante, right? Again, personal experience shows that there are solutions to that. But anyway, so, okay, you have the, I forgot what you called. I called them an outlier. You called them opportunistic hires. hires. Yes, exactly. Opportunistic hires. Those come few and far between, but it's just a matter of kind of having that eye to see something that you didn't see. Let's go, unless you have anything else to add on that, I was thinking. Uh, One other thing is that we just hired one recently, and Mm -hmm. it was a person who was interviewing for another job. This person from this other organization who's been really great, Didi, is awesome. She applied for a different role clearly not a fit for that role. Right. But we go, this is a great person. We have to figure it out. We had this same thing happen again, where someone applied for a role. Mm -hmm. We felt like they're not really right for that role, but wow, this is an incredible person. How can they fit? I think their total opportunistic hires probably is four. I'm taking guesses here, but I know not all of them worked out. No, they're all there still. Well, I was thinking of a different opportunistic hire. Mm -hmm. Maybe I forgot about that one already. Yeah, exactly. You kind of erase those from <laughs> your it, mind. <laughs> put it his, ancient history. Well, I mean, I'm just saying, like yeah. sometimes, but but you have to take that risk, it feels like. And there's that knowledge, it feels like. Usually that those opportunistic hires are usually at a somewhat more advanced senior in level. their career, senior level, where there is that honesty with everyone. For us, where if it's not working out, it's like, okay, you know what? We gave it a shot. No hard feelings, but we're going to go different ways now. And there's so much more risk on the opportunistic hires too, because they're coming in at a senior role. Right. Like, so, so you're so paying like, them more. They're paying them a lot more, but also they have a much bigger impact on the broader organization. So they can lift up way more than their own weight in the organization, yes. and they can also bring down way more than their you own weight in the organization. organization. Exactly. It's not a fit. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Is I just it, realized which opportunistic hire you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I figured it would you're take right. a minute, but, right. but, but bringing but, down the organization. But the thing right. is, that was a worthy risk. That made it sense. Was worth it, it. On paper, it made sense to try that. It did. 
and I don't think you regret trying it. I don't regret. I think we know so much and, and, about it, about what path we should go. Yeah, you learn things from when those exactly. things work out. And I think both sides do as well. Yes. That's kind of how I always look at those types of things. So in terms of the more block and tackle type of hiring process for a second here, yeah. like I would say that at least Royalty Exchange, now I didn't have to go through this particular interview process. I think it was maybe developed after I started. I'm not really sure. But like, I would say you guys do things a little bit differently. I've always believed in a highly structured interview process or recruiting process. Always believed in it. The one that we use now is a very close to the one we've always used. You just came in first as a consultant that I hired directly. And so you just, because I came of that, through the back door is what you came in through the back door. And I think that that's often actually sometimes the best way to enter an organization. And from an employer standpoint, the guy in charge of people at Google wrote a book called Work Rules. I can't remember his name right now, but the book is called Work Rules. And in it, Google says that the two main determinations of whether or not someone would be successful in a role at Google was, number one, does Google already have experience working with them, basically as a contractor or something else? Okay. If they were able to essentially try before they buy, that was the greatest single indicator thing that might make them more successful. The second thing was IQ, the second greatest determinator of whether or not they'd be successful in Google's environment. That's our culture. Higher IQs tended to be more successful at Google. They're big into the data, so this is what their approach was. So for us, with you, we had a chance to essentially try before we buy, and so did you, which Mm -hmm. this, you know, increases the comfort for everybody coming into it. You Mm -hmm. can better know how the role should work. It's a better way of doing it. So the ultimate recruiting process is actually that, I think, if you can actually try before you buy, Mm -hmm. let people actually try each other out, that's way better. You can't do that 90% of the time. First of all, it's Laszlo Bach, the author of uh, Work Rules. But secondly, there is a bit of a risk. The try before you buy makes a lot of sense, okay? But how can be a little, little bit different? So coming in as a consultant, I mean, and this is one thing I'll, it was something I struggled with, which I didn't really expect to. And the thing is, I've done it before. This isn't just a royalty exchange thing. This is a consultant perspective that you may not know about. But there's a weird sort of mindset dynamic. Where as a consultant, you come in and you're kind of in like this supportive, you know, say whatever you gotta say to keep the checks coming. That's not really, that's a joke, really more than anything else. But you're like, you're there to like, look, it's their company. I'm just here to kind of help where they need me to help. And you're not really like in charge of anything. You're just sort of making suggestions. And if they say no, you're like, well, okay, you just paid me to give you a proposal that you rejected and you want to, you know, whatever. You kind of have this go with the flow sort of attitude. And then when you come into the organization, you kind of expected to have a little bit more of an overtly sort of authoritative role in some respects sometimes. And that can be a difficult transition as a consultant sometimes. That might be more me than the organization, you know, because you do, as the person coming in from that former consultant, then hire full-time, that person has to be very honest with themselves and very aware of their mindset and how it's shifting from sort of a supportive consulting role to more of a key contributor type of role. That's a definite shift. It's very similar to coming in from an intern. You know, the same idea, like as an intern, you're kind of the person who's just sort of saying yes to everything, you get in the coffee or whatever, and then you get promoted. And now people are still kind of treating you like an intern, even though you're not, you got to like create these walls and stuff. Those are very weird transitions that should be kept in mind for everyone, I think. I think that's really smart. It's easy to not see that as the employer. Right. It's easy to be for you. No, exactly. But it's there. And again, sometimes it's more on the mindset of the person and it's on them to kind of get their head straight, right? I'm not saying this is an organizational flaw by any means, but it's just something to keep be aware of that those are things that, you know, the try before you not buy is a good idea, but just keep in mind that there's that component. Again, recently, there was a senior person we hired just very recently who has a lot of experience in finance and also has a lot of experience in a startup at the growth (laughs) stage. Mm -hmm. And senior level role, so there's high risk with it for him and for us. Mm-hmm. You know, his career choices make a big difference in how he's going to end up 10 years from now, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's really high stakes for him, high stakes for us because expensive, number one. And again, they can bring up way more than their weight in the organization and they can bring down way more than their weight in the organization. So 
we had with him, and I explained this to all of the, our staff beforehand, that they knew he was part of our recruiting process. We're hiring him. We're going to pay him to work 20 hours over the course of the next five days. And we want to see how we like working with him. And I wanted him to meet with everyone in the organization. I wanted him to interview and understand different things that were going on in the organization. I wanted to see the way he thought about the set of problems that he would face mm-hmm. in coming into the organization. And it created that kind of try before you buy situation where you know we paid him for that time as a consultant. It was like a paid interview in a way. Yeah. You know? And all the staff got to know. I mean, they, if the guy's a, a real asshole, then he would have been flushed out of that system. Some employees would have staged a general revolt. I could actually pick a couple of them by name, I think. Yeah. I would, <laughs> and I would hope they would because we don't want that. We do not want that. And I could do that with him because he had the time transitioning out of a company and he yeah. had lots of bandwidth basically yeah. to be able to do this. So you don't usually have this in a, mm-hmm. where you can actually try them like this. But I think when you can, it's really good. Aside from that though, a highly structured interview process is the best way to make sure you get the best candidates through the process. Define highly structured. First time I talked to somebody who is interested in working with us, I should be able to explain to a candidate how exactly the process will work from beginning to end at the first point of contact with them. So it's highly structured in the way that it's clearly definable. Okay. There, so, are, there are certain steps or certain stages. There are certain stages. They're clearly defined. And what you're doing within each of those stages is also clearly structured and defined. Would you care to break that down? Sure. And it depends a little bit by role. Sure. But the general thing is this, is that first, we obviously have the job ad out there. We get resumes and cover letters and whatever other extra things you might ask for for apply. To apply. And then we have a screening call where the screen call, honestly, is mostly just to explain to them who we are, what we're doing. And if they are interested at that point. Who does the screening call? We have a person who does this full-time. And what are you asking in that screening call? Mostly what we're doing is we're trying to deliver information about us. Okay. More than anything else. Because I believe most people will self-select. You're trying to talk them, them, almost talk them, not not talk them out of it, but you're trying to like, look, this is the deal. Right. This is what the job is. I don't Mm -hmm. want there to be any confusion about what it is. This is what our company is. This is how we do things. What questions do you have for me? As long as you don't see any, no red flags come up. Like for instance, they don't really know anything about the company. For instance, like they've okay. done nothing in right. advance of this call to even know who you are. Are you selecting out like, you know, if someone says, hey, I expect $200,000 a year for this. Is that even part of that process yet? Like, what are your salary expectations? Is that? At that stage, that's usually not part of it. In some roles it could be, but it's very rare that it would be. And okay. it's very rare that an employee or a candidate would mention something like that at that stage anyway. I ask because a lot of companies do add it at that stage and that's why I bring it up. The role is clearly defined. There's market pricing on this so you can find out, so you can figure out generally where people ought to be. Assuming everything, all that's good, then we schedule the first interview. Mm-hmm. In the first interview, again, it's a highly structured process where basically we are looking for achievement in their past, you know, with a basic belief of that past performance predicts future behavior. We're not asking questions about how they feel about things. If you ask a person a future-based question, you always get an answer that is everyone feels good about. But what you're really trying to find out is, I want to know what people's motives are whenever there's any kind of transition in their life. So you can find places where their first job. Why did they take that job? The university they went to, why they went to that university. This is what I'm getting at. Cause, uh, so when you said that, that first interview, for those who don't know, how long do you generally schedule that first interview for? First interview will be between two and three hours long. That's not usual. That's not a normal first interview. I, I think it is for high performance companies. I think it's very common. I, mean, I'm, I'm, I don't mean yeah. that as a negative. I'm just saying that. Most people you know, do recruiting. They shoot from the hip on it, honestly. And okay. I just think it's really easy to make an error if you do it that way. The truth is that if you don't ask these questions to deeply understand the history of a person in the interview process, you will never know it later. 
there's never an opportunity for you to comfortably ask one of your employees about their entire work history <laughs> and the core decisions they made and why they made them over time. So you end up knowing the person who ends up working for you versus not knowing them. So it's really valuable anyway, assuming you do hire them. Yeah, because it seems like most interviews, most, I don't know, I haven't been in a lot of them, but I mean, it seems like the standard, if I were to put it that way, might be like around an hour. Yeah. Let's call it that. And an hour, it's like, you're just kind of getting going. Well, and they're talking, the employer's probably talking half the time Half the time, yeah, exactly. Or if an hour's too long, then you know you're probably not the right person. Yep. So So two to three hours. Two to three hours. That's amazing. Right. And we have multiple people as part of this process. Mm -hmm. Because again, different people can see different perspectives on the person. And so the person comes in, actually, I should say this, before the person even comes in for an interview, we have them take a couple of tests. I definitely believe in um, some of these uh, psychological tests that they give you a very good perspective on the person's disposition. Uh, the MIG, the Myers-Briggs, Myers-Briggs is one Briggs, of them. Yeah. yeah. We use a tool called Talent Insights, which basically takes a couple different of these psychological tests and kind of uh, pushes them together and gives you pretty good insights on people's disposition. And it can also tell you whether or not it looks like the person is trying to game the test and all these other things. And this gives us a good idea how this person might interact with the rest of the organization. That's what I wanted to get at, explain that. So this is like, okay, everyone in the organization has taken this test and you have the data on those results. And then someone new, potentially new, takes the same test and you're looking at their results against the other folks that are already there. For what reason exactly? Is it for culture fit or is it like we got 20 people with this score, we need someone, explain that. Well, there's certainly diversity of the way people think is important. I really believe that. But I think that the biggest thing is that the employee is going to have to work within a team dynamic of some kind. Mm -hmm. And if they are a carbon copy of another member of the team, maybe that's a really great advantage, but it might be a disadvantage. You might need somebody who has, for instance, maybe a higher detail orientation to complement the skill set, the talent pool. It goes goes back to the blind spots we talked about earlier. Exactly. I don't need one person to be everything. The A team is the standard of a great team in my mind. Well, and the so, A team is in BA Baracus A team. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. I know you love that. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> They're really, really good at some things, mm-hmm. really, really weak at others. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I think the other reason you like it is I think I may be the only other person in the office who knows uh, who, who the A team is. Um, can appreciate the reference. But anyway, you say you do that before they come in for the interview. Have the results of those tests ever kept an interview from progressing to the next step. No, never that at all. In fact, what it does, it actually gives you the basis for asking some more questions because detail orientation is one of the core things that you can be determined from these tests. Okay. It's like a disposition toward detail orientation, a disposition towards a certain speed of decision-making, a disposition toward going with the flow or charting their own course. It's all context-based, but this disposition they have is a factor. It's going to affect the way that they behave within an organization and knowing those things in advance of the interview allows us to try and validate those within their actual prior experience. You are a very data-oriented person. You you like to see the numbers to kind of help make decisions. So how much of it, and this is me challenging you now a little bit on this, is you just looking for like some kind of data to help your decision because it's otherwise so sort of subjective. You see what I'm saying? And and whether or not the data that you're getting is actually really valuable or not, it's just data, so therefore I'm going to... And I say this because, as you know, I am not a huge believer in these tests. They are context-based. Even those three elements I talked about, like decision speed, going with the flow or charting their own course and detail orientation. It's like a Venn diagram. It's the overlay of these three things in various ways in certain contexts that actually is their behavior. But I believe there's truth to it. The thing is, is that I use it as a sanity check. Like, is this person gaming me? You know, where I think, oh, this person's really on top of their shit and very detail oriented. And yet I look at this thing and it shows them being very bad, you know, in terms of detail. And actually, I can tell you, you look in our organization, by the way, and Mm -hmm. this detail orientation in particular, 
And if you don't believe that this is, has any accuracy, if you actually look at people we know really well mm-hmm. and what, where they sit in it, you wouldn't deny it anymore. This is a personal arrogance yeah. on my part. It's like no test where I give an, a range of numerical responses could ever incorporate all that is Bruno, right? Like that's just, and it depends on you what are day. You a unique and special uh, snowflake. Uh, How could this possibly? Damn right I am. Now don't, you can say it all you like, you know, and also it depends on the day. Like, you know, I'm a pretty sporadic, you know, individual. So anyway, I, this isn't about me. Yeah. This is just, I just wanted to use my bias as an opportunity to dig more into the process. They're an additional tool for the interviewer to make better decisions, uh-huh. to have sanity checks, to like maybe eliminate some of the basic bias that the interview, whoever they are, might bring into the interview. Because you come in with some preconceived notions, these things make it harder for you to maintain those biases or those notions in the face of evidence that might counter it. Okay, you know? so it's not, you're not making absolute decisions on it. It's just Definitely more of not. a guide. It's just more of a little salt maybe on it or something. Okay, so anyway, psychological test, three-hour interview. Yes. If the person actually just stays that long, you know that you, they're interested. <laughs> right. Right. And we've had ones that have gone longer for sure, okay. honestly. And that's good usually, I would it, think. It almost always is, yeah. yeah. After that, if we think that they're, we're happy with how that interview went, mm-hmm. then we bring them back for a second interview. What happens in that second interview that you haven't done in the first three hours? The first interview is focused on like gathering all of their history. It's really hard for people to game it because they're going through so much. What exactly happened at this yeah. job? And then when did you leave? And why did you leave? And who did you work with? And what are the projects you worked on? And what was your role in those projects? And how did they do? And <laughs> I mean, like it's so detail oriented. Yeah. We had people, many, many people after the first interview that have been doing this process for, you know, more than a decade leave that interview and say, I've never had an interview like that before. This yeah. is why I bring it up. Yeah. The second interview is basically validating the general assumptions mm-hmm. that the people, who interviewed in the first one formed, you know, trying to probe those better to test the hypothesis they might have. And it's designed to get broader buy-in from the organization about the person. So are there different people now in that second interview from the organization participating? There would still be people that were in the first interview, at least Uh one that was in the first interview, but you would definitely invite others into that second interview just because you want to get the buy-in. We also typically send that person out to lunch with our staff or a couple members of the staff so they can just ask some questions and give us their informal see, feedback. See how they treat the servers, you know, that all kind of. that stuff. Yeah. Try before you buy light or no, just get an interaction with more people. So okay. after that interview, we'll tell you yes, no, or we don't know. We need more time or we need more information to make a decision. But that highly structured process, and we use a couple of different approaches to it. There's a couple of different systems, hiring systems that we use that actually we've kind of merged together. One of them is this guy, uh, Lou Adler, Lou Adler has, um, can't remember what he calls his system now, but um, it's focused on the past, but it's focused on the achievement, the individual's drive to achievement, historically, you know, in all their prior roles. At your organization, if you're getting called back for that second interview, at this point, is it sort of your job to lose or is it still up in the air? It's still up in the air. I would definitely say that while you might have a strong opinion about a person after the first interview, you think there really could be something there. If you're coming back for the second interview, it really means that there's not any obvious reason why you should be excluded. It's not that there's any obvious reason why you should be hired necessarily. It's just there's no obvious reason as to why you should not be hired. So there's more than one candidate still in the second round. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you have multiple candidates in there because okay. so you, you make way better decisions if you have more to choose from. Okay. Because you get through that second round and then if you don't get the job, I mean, that's I'm, I'm thinking from the person coming in, it's got to be rough. Have you gone Definitely. through the second round and said no to folks? Okay. Definitely. Many times. Okay. Try to make it so the process is still positive for them. It's right. still conducted very professionally. It's still one that they get a free lunch out of. It. They do get free lunch <laughs> out of it, and I, you know, I think that they end up knowing more about us. And a lot of times, we know a lot more about them. And a lot of times, it's like not now, but maybe later. 
you know, this isn't the right role we think for you because of these other reasons, but maybe if you don't mind, can we call you back in the future if we have something that does come up? Right. And, and these are for folks who aren't at that opportunistic higher level yeah. anyway, right? There's obviously a spectrum there or yep. a range. So interesting. And so I just looked up, so Lou Adler, is it performance-based hiring? Is that what Yeah, that's what he calls it, okay. performance-based so, hiring. These phones are really handy. They are. Google, wow. <laughs> yeah. Actually, okay. I, I want to say one thing about sure. one of the other prerequisites. To, so you can have this highly structured Lou Adler's mm-hmm. you know, interview process. I think it's really good. There are others, but I think that you know, Lou Adler's is, is great. So you could just follow his system exactly, which is a little bit different than ours. But I think the prerequisite to all of this is that you have to create a public face of your company that is enough of a magnet that it's going to draw talent to you anyway. When uh, we hired you in the very beginning, this is one of the things I said I wanted us to work on because the second person we hired four months into the company, you know, so we're just getting started. You know, we're four months in the company. He'd been working there for like four months at this point. So he was hired before we really opened the doors. And I noticed that he didn't have his LinkedIn profile showing that he worked for us. <laughs> he didn't say he worked for anybody. Right. And I was not like, really sure yet. Yeah. It's like he wasn't comfortable publicly showing that he even worked for us. I thought that was strange. And I was like, he's just still unsure. And there was another uh, one that you mentioned at the time that he'd bring it up was someone who you were interviewing. I don't think ever actually took the job. But yeah. I think she mentioned that the whole thing felt a little too smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Like it didn't seem real. Exactly. She's like, I'm not sure what's going on here. I can't find out any information about you and you guys and what are you doing here? And it was a substantial wake-up call for me. So after that second data point with her, mm-hmm. I actually got our team together, very small at the time, and the individual who didn't have the LinkedIn profile updated, I said, listen, I think we have a problem. <laughs> and I told him, I said, I don't want you to change it until you want to change it. But this is our barometer. Until he feels comfortable you know, saying, yeah, these are the guys I work for. This is the company that I'm you know, working right. on. This is the project that I'm devoting my life's energy to. Right. Then we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough at all. So we started to look at a whole bunch of different ways that we might be more communicative to the public about you know, the potential employee pool, about sure. you know, who we were, what we were doing. I want to save this topic for another entire episode, which is really about brand to a certain extent. Yeah. And that's something that we're going to talk more about this anyway, because- after having left, I am coming back, as you well know. And, and that, I think, is at the stage of the company is something that we need to have a real discussion. Not, not a bad, in a bad way. I'm just saying that this yeah. is, we've already had this conversation. But the point is, like, people don't just take on jobs with roles and specific activities. I mean, that's, that's all part of it. But it, they're part of a broader thing, a, a movement. Yes. And the movement is attached to a brand. And same thing with customers. We can go on and on and on. Yep. So another podcast. But that's kind of where that kind of pops up. You do have a very, very uh, structured hiring process. And just real quickly, I also think that once you do hire someone, a really smart thing you do is you have a very deliberate onboarding process as well. I don't know how much we want to get into it now, but you can just, just hit the highlights because that is really, really, having been through experiences where that's not the case, essential to that. It's the period at the end of that sentence. Yeah. You can cut the time for an employee coming, becoming comfortable with the organization and productive within the organization by many months by having an onboarding process that is deliberate. It is unbelievably helpful. Yeah. I mean, just people don't even know who people are. You know, you don't know who other people in the organization, if you don't have an opportunity to do that as part of the onboarding. And what's ironic is that, you know, within a smaller organization like Royalty Exchange, you could get away to a certain extent without having it be that structured yes. because it is small enough. You walk in, you look around, you've now met your entire, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's really, really simple. What's amazing to me is that I actually, when I left Royalty Exchange, I went to a much, much, much larger organization, over 2,000 people. And the onboarding, both the formal HR created onboarding process and the more informal within your department or office or whatever you want to call it, was abysmal. 
and probably a huge reason why I decided, well, definitely a huge factor anyway in my decision to leave. The way some people are just sort of thrown to the wolves, so to speak, and like figure it out, like how much time is wasted doing that and how much stress and just, you know, goodwill lost and all these things and just time wasted. It's an abdication of responsibility by the manager as far as I'm concerned. It's absolutely unbelievable. Like it really kind of blows me away. But I think that's important to talk about in the hiring process because that is once you get the job, it's not over. It's just begun. Yes, that's right. Structure is important. And I think the thing is, is that the other reason why structure is important in all of this is that if people are, as people often say, the most valuable asset a company might have. Uh-huh. But you aren't devoting the energy to create a highly structured process so that the candidates and employees are treated professionally by you. You're going to lose great candidates along the way anyway. You're going to lose them because your lack of professionalism, your lack of clear expectations about what the process looks like is going to turn the best people away. So having a structured process makes it so that you're not going to drop the ball. And it's also not so chaotic for the organization because you're like, well, we've got this person who applied. Now, what do we do with them? Well, of course, what we do with them, it's all spelled out very clearly. This is what we do with them. And it's not just fair to the person coming in, but it's fair to everyone else who's now, because they all have to adjust, particularly at a small organization for this new role. That's right. Small organizations that are growing, especially because the burden of hiring is so substantial on the organization, it takes a lot of resources to hire effectively. Mm -hmm. You can offload a lot of the cognitive load associated with hiring if you build a structure. So it's just like making an assembly line. You know, of course, you want to bring your brain to it when you're doing it, but I mean, you want to offload as much of it as you can to the process. So given all of that, why on earth would you ever fire anybody? Well, the company changes and the role changes. Like I said, we've only fired a few people. And I would say probably two of them ultimately were fired because they were really working for themselves and not for the organization, which basically means putting their personal interests ahead of the organizational interests. Sounds better to say their personal interests ahead of the team interests. you know. And I think when you see that pattern over and over again, then you know that that person's not going to be a good fit. It's ultimately going to go bad. So two of them are that. But those things aren't really clear at first. I would love to ask, how do you recognize that pattern? With one person, the most obvious things, this this person would actually never even identify himself as part of the organization. We're always talking about you guys. But it's a consistent pattern of it. And then saying, you know, why do you always say it like that? Because it's us, right? Uh I mean, why is everything else us, but then this thing is not? The words that people choose to use are deliberate. And it's because they want to be consistent with their way that they view the world. People have a desire to be consistent. It's hard to go and say us and really not believe it's us over yeah. and over again. I mean, this is over a year. Okay. You see this pattern over and over again. You're like, there's something here in his psyche that he's separating himself from us. I think this person probably never really believed in our vision for the business. This person came from the music industry and had a strong sense of how things had been done historically, had lots of experience mm-hmm. in the music industry. What we're trying to do is totally different than what's ever been done before. So that was one indication, but there was also a lot of other, like more tangible lack of production and things like that. But that you were able to point to this attitude as the cause, as the root. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of things out there that you never know what's going to happen, but there was a second dot to connect there. Yes. Is this thing real as a hypothesis? And then do you prove that hypothesis by observing other events that actually happen and going, well, that is somebody who felt this way. You know, this is kind of what you'd expect, this okay. sort of performance. It's really interesting that that was the first point that you brought, because I know what you're talking about now. Anyone else would have pointed to the output component, but you first went to the attitude component. Yeah, I'm interested in people's motivation. Because actually, if it's the attitude thing, which I talked to this person about very specifically several times, if that attitude is that way, if that attitude could be changed so it was us, then I think necessarily 
the outcome would have been different. So yeah. looking at the outcome only and trying to correct for the outcome is not the root cause of that outcome. I just think there's never full buy-in to certain things. So this person could not, in good conscience, do what we were asking him to do. Which goes all the way back to what we first started talking about in terms of some of the folks that have left on their own accord. These aren't folks that you would have let go on your own because they had the attitude that was necessary to potentially make any progress in any right. shortfall in production. And I'm speaking exactly. very, very genuinely right now. Exactly. But, so that's interesting. All the people that I fired are people where there was a fundamental breakdown at the root, where really it was the way they saw themselves and the organization were sort of necessarily in conflict. I'd say that's of the three people that come to mind that I terminated at Royalty Exchange, all three, that was the case. On the service, it looks like an abdication of responsibility or fail to perform or something like that. But that's because of at their root, they had this disconnect. I'm going to go back to a term you used, which was on the boat. So you're not throwing anybody off the boat. You, in your mind, you've not really thrown anybody off the boat. These people were never really on the boat to begin with. Right. You could argue in all of those, at least in two of the cases, I let it go a lot longer than I should have, certainly. Wow. You know, and I think that you should, you know, you're supposed to be slow to hire, fast to fire. I believe that when it's really clear that you have a mishire, you should fire right away. And I have done that. I've fired people the same week that they started, mm-hmm. you know, and I go, oh my God, we're, I'm so sorry. We made a terrible mistake, you know, and we try and make it up to them and give them like big severance or something because it's a huge conflict we cost them, even though they only worked for three days, right. you know? But that's very rare that that has happened. I think only once I can think and of And that was before you had this hiring structure that you've talked about now, I believe. We were using this hiring structure. Oh, you were? Actually, yeah. We messed up in that we didn't have a single person responsible for the process from beginning to end. So uh-huh. there was information that didn't get communicated I to everybody. Okay. So we just weren't doing it as diligently, but we were doing the same process. Two in particular, I'm thinking of, it wasn't obvious that it wasn't our fault right away. Mm-hmm. You know, Could we be doing something better? Because there's some way that, are we setting them up for success? Are we asking them to do the right job in the right way? So when it was obvious that we definitely exhausted all of our potential areas of responsibility, then, then we let them go. And has there ever been a time where it's just been simply a true evolution of the company and the role where it's like the role just dead ended or something like that? In any organization I run, if you had a good person and then the role just sort of changed, you could find a place for the, okay. pers- the person in the organization in some capacity. I believe in, if it's not their fault, and they are like a good person who knows the business can create a lot of value. Just the institutional knowledge someone has in working in an organization for a couple of years is so valuable that if you can find a way that they can create value in the organization, there's somewhere it can happen. There's a lot of obvious things that people get fired for. There's behavioral things. There's, you know, harassment issues. I mean, there's yeah. some of that stuff Reponance. I don't think we need to get, yeah. get into because it's kind obvious. of obvious. You right? don't have a choice. Right. It's like, look, that was just, it's against the line, you're out, you yeah. know, done. It's that on the boat, off the boat attitude. That's your non-obvious sort of tipping point. The mental model I use for it, or the heuristic, uh-huh. is if I feel like I care more about your success and performance than you care about your success and performance, there's really nothing I could do. If my commitment to your success is greater than your own, what do you want me to do? I, I don't feel like I can alter that. And when you see that, when someone has this attitude, this kind of fragmented attitude about their work in the company, then they're clearly not committed to success there. You know what I mean? it does fall within that framework in my mind. They're not open and coachable to altering things, their behavior or their way of thinking to be able to be successful in the organization. And there's very little I can do. Okay, makes sense. I guess real quickly then, lastly, how do you fire? Is it just like, do you have a similar structure or process or mental model for anything along those lines or is it just different based on the person and the situation? I think you should be generous and try and part as friends, most importantly, because it's not worth it. Sometimes you can get very upset and frustrated with an employee if you let it go too long, it can turn into resentment. And then people at that point of termination, 
use that as a place to punish. And it's so petty and stupid. You get nothing more out of it. You have to realize that when you're firing this person, it's probably a humiliating experience for them. So that really fucking sucks, putting them in that situation. I think you need to do it with empathy. I think you need to be generous. When you're delivering the news, though, you have to be just totally matter-of-fact about it. Yeah, because sort other, of otherwise you're, you're putting them in a bad position otherwise. If you say, listen, you know, there's this that's going on, that's that's going on, and so I'm letting you go today, then you've basically put in a position where you've told them what the outcome is, but you've asked them to defend themselves because you're telling them, pointing out at that point, all the things that you feel like they've done wrong. It's petty to mm-hmm. do that. You have to have a good explanation for why it's happening when it's not one of these red line situations where if it's like real bad, obviously abuse situation yeah. um, of some kind, but where it's one of these more attitudinal ones. You want to frame it in a way that is uh, clear, but generous and as gentle as possible, and then understand that they probably feel humiliated by it and do what you can to make that less for them. To wrap the whole thing up now, when you're firing someone, you almost want to tell the person that they're being let go in the same way that you, as the manager, would prefer someone who's quitting tell you why they're leaving. Because essentially, when they're when someone's leaving, they're kind of firing you. They are. Yes. So see how we're kind of putting that together a little exactly. bit? Exactly. That's how I kind of would look at it right. a little bit. And so using that as an example, as an employer, when someone's coming to me telling me they're quitting, when they tell me that, I take that as the decision has been made. Like the back and forth after that, like I'm trying to preserve it or whatever is right. totally, it's just not worth it at that point, right. honestly. And so I think if you can convince the person to stay, odds are it's just because you're bribing them. You know, you're offering them so much money or something like that. Yeah, like what can go. we do? What can we do to help? And if, yeah. and if that's the thing that's going to get them to stay, then you probably don't want them anyway because that's right. the wrong motivation. It's the wrong motivation. The news is delivered in a way you realize, okay, well, that's the facts of life. Well, is there something we can learn from it You know, that's useful? Sometimes we have exit interviews with people. What could we be doing better? You know, how do we make the organization more effective? How would we have made it a better place for you? If you really care about people's opinions on that, they'll be very open and honest with you. In some cases, not in all, but in some cases, we have done that in the past. And like I said, for myself, like I've left many companies. <laughs> I'm, like right. I'm the what else is out there kind of guy. I try to pride myself in how I do that, I try to do that in a very deliberate, right. very uh, respectful way. Because nine times out of 10, it's very rarely been out of a sense of animosity towards exactly. where I was. It's always just, I'm that guy who always wants to know what's around the curve, right? And so then when you go around the curve, you're like, whoa, that curve really sucked, which is the situation that I'm in. And now I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to come back. When you told me you were leaving and the way I announced it to all of our employees, actually, is I said, but uh, he'll be back. And I've been saying that you'd be back this whole time, mostly because I wanted it to be clear to you that you would be welcome to come back. But I took it as just like one of those things that you say. And then when I was complaining about what was going on, what shocked me was your reaction to that, which was come back. That was not what I was expecting. I thought it was, and I don't mean to say you were just talking, but you know, you, there's platitudes that we all nah, do in, in life. Okay. I don't. So the way you pounced on that made me really think, well, wait a minute. I've been serious this whole time. <laughs> that is something that's a possibility because I had not counted yeah. that as a possibility. I mean, because you make a decision, you move on and that's it. You do your thing. So when that was not expected. And I think I've said to folks there, it's like, you have this unique way of finding ways to get what you want. <laughs> and so, you know. I'm, I'm a volunteerist, you know, I want people to do what they want, but I also know I want well, no, the environment. Like, I, I, I was teetering on the edge, as you know, yeah. about the other place. And uh, it definitely helped push it over a little bit. And it made me think things differently, like, you know, well, whatever, we don't need to get into all that here. Anyway, the point is that there's this really deliberate way. So there's hiring, there's firing, there's handling Turn departures over. and whatnot. And there's just, everything should have a structure and a deliberate way of handling it. And the hiring process, remember, you gotta fly your flag so that people can see it and know what you stand for to mm-hmm. draw the right potential candidates to you. Mm-hmm. That's number one. The second on hiring is you have to have a highly structured process. 
so you can professionally sell and select the candidates that come through your recruiting funnel. Mm-hmm. So that's really important, of course. And then the onboarding as well should be highly structured. And also leave yourself open within that structured environment to the opportunistic hire and to where possible the try before you buy. Exactly. So opportunistic hiring should be whether it's in your recruiting funnel, you find people that you could opportunistically hire for roles you didn't imagine. Mm-hmm. I think that you should look for it there, but you should look for it walking around in your day-to-day. Always be looking for people who are remarkably talented. And when you meet them and they're maybe not at all in a position where they can even consider coming to work for you, and you know that you would love to work with them someday because of their skill set, mm-hmm. you just tell them and say, hey, man, if you're ever considering any other career change or whatever, mm-hmm. give me a call because you know, you're really smart and I'm impressed. So I think opportunistic hires are really big. And then you know, when people quit, when people resign, when they deliver the news, be empathetic, understand it from their perspective. Definitely don't ever be resentful about it or mm-hmm. mad about it because they're doing what they believe it's is in the best interest. Personal. Very rarely personal. Take an opportunity to learn from it and ask yourself the question, is this a problem or an opportunity? That's really critical. And when you're firing somebody, the sooner you know, the better. You'll get it done as fast as possible, definitely. But you want to deliver the news in a way that is kind and generous as much as possible. Well, thank you very much, Matt. That was an interesting conversation. Thank you, Anthony. Right, talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer, Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.